0: really happened on the Damascus Road? Well, our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says in the book of Acts, Paul gives us the basic facts, but in Philippians, he bears his soul and then tells us the full story of the huge transformation that happened. Welcome to the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to hop aboard the Bible bus as we set out for Philippians 3, and we're going to hear Paul's firsthand account of the revolution that took place in his life and heart. Our message today is titled, The Man Who Lost His Religion. So grab your Bible and let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who changes everything. As we study today, Lord, help us to know him more and to serve him better. Show us how to set aside all the worldly things that we rely on and instead trust you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Here now is The Man Who Lost His Religion on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee.
1: Now this morning our subject is the man who lost his religion, and that was the best thing that ever happened to that man. The New Testament contains a more complete, detailed, and historical record of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus than of any other man or any other person. The book of Acts records the history of Paul's experience on the Damascus Road. Not once, but actually four times, and I do not believe that we have all of the record. I'm of the opinion that Paul never went anywhere or never spoke to a group for the first time that he did not give to them his experience of conversion on the Damascus Road. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, repeated the events which took place on the Damascus Road again and again. And we find, first of all, that we have the historical record that is given by Dr. Luke of that event. And then Paul, beginning in the 22nd chapter of Acts, he recounts his conversion to the mob. In Jerusalem, when he was arrested. In Acts 24, when he was brought before Felix, he gave again those events. He never seemed to tire of repeating again and again. And in the 25th of Acts, when he was called before Festus, he repeated again the story of his conversion. And then in the 26th chapter of Acts, That which is indeed a classic, it's one of the greatest chapters I think in the Word of God you find Paul before Agrippa rejoicing in the fact that he's now before a man. He says, I know you will understand what I'm talking about because you're acquainted with all the customs that are among the Jews. And so we have that record, and then again when he wrote to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. He tells about the different witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And he concludes by saying, And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles and am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This man again and again would repeat the fact of his conversion on the Damascus Road. But the interesting thing is that in none of these accounts does Paul open up his heart and tell of the mighty transformation which took place in his life. You have just an abridged, an abbreviated statement of the bare facts in Acts. That's all that you have. He does not put the spotlight on his soul and permit you to see what really transpired in that great struggle that went on in the heart of this man. It's only in the epistle to the Philippians does Paul bear his soul and let you see what really took place in his life, and he opens up his life for inspection there. The Philippians, of course, were the ones that were closer to the apostle Paul than any other church. Of all those that he founded, these folks seemed to have been closer to him. They loved him more, and he loved them. And you can't read this Philippian epistle without detecting the great love that this apostle had for them and they, in turn, had for him, so that you have In this record that he gives here of his conversion, you have a tremendous revealing of a man's inner life. Elsewhere you have the events. Here it's the experience. The record in Acts, you have the objective side. Here it's the subjective side. In Acts, you have the physical aspects of his conversion. Here you have the psychological aspects. There you have the facts. Here you have the feelings that took place in his life. There you have a record, and here you have a revolution. And this morning, I want you to see that revolution that took place in this man's life. Actually, he lost his religion when he came to Christ. Now, will you listen to him? I believe, in spite of what different Greek commentators say, that Paul frankly felt he was coming to the conclusion of his epistle at the beginning of the third chapter. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And it seems as if he was coming now to the end of the epistle, and the Spirit of God prompted this man to go on and to write more. In fact, he's just halfway through. And we have, therefore, good apostolic succession here and authority when the preacher says, in the last place in his sermon, and he really is just halfway through, you will understand that he is following the apostolic example. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to tell that he doesn't mind writing to these folk because he's not attempting to correct doctrine as he did when he wrote the Galatian epistle. He's not attempting to correct conduct as he did when he wrote to the Corinthians. These folk had sent him a very generous offering, and it's a thank you note. And he's writing them to express not only his appreciation, but love. And he recognizes they'll understand. But he gives them a warning. He says, beware of dogs. And actually, what he means by dogs is not that somebody had a four-footed animal that you're to beware of, but rather false teachers, shepherds that would not give a warning for the sheep. And he speaks of them, Isaiah does, as being dumb dogs. They won't bark. And there are a lot of preachers that won't bark today, I can tell you that. They are afraid to speak out today. But they're called false shepherds. And he says, beware of dogs, and beware of evil workers, and beware of the concision. And he just absolutely, he cuts that word down. He slights it, concision, for that's what he's speaking now of his own nation, But he says, we are the circumcision today which worship God, not by some physical ritual, but we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And then he says this tremendous statement, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Paul says that we do not trust the flesh at all. That is. We do not trust the old nature to produce anything that's acceptable to God. We do not believe it's capable of producing anything. Now, you can well understand that the enemies of Paul, these Judaizers who so misrepresented him, and that's been a characteristic that when any man will preach the gospel, he'll be misrepresented. And Paul was misrepresented. Now, he attempts to guard against it. You can see that. When he says, we have no confidence in the flesh, you can see some of these pious Pharisees shaking their head and saying, well, you know, we knew Brother Paul. He was with us at one time, and frankly, he didn't have really very much to boast in. Along the lines of the flesh, he had nothing that he could have confidence in. He was not really a very religious man. And He didn't have very much of a background so that we can understand why Paul would say that. Now, Paul guards against that type of gossip and he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. He said, When anyone says that I do not have a basis for confidence in the flesh, they really don't know Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus had every reason to put confidence in the flesh. He had religion. This man was religious to his fingertips and the outstanding man of his day. As one biographer of Paul has said, the world would have heard of him if he'd even never become a Christian. I think he had a high IQ. He had a tremendous zeal. He's a man of tremendous ability. And he was... Uh, under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the day, forging ahead when would probably become the leader, I think one of the reasons they hated him and persecuted him and didn't let up until they finally eliminated him was simply because this man was a man of such a remarkable ability. Now he says, if anybody might have confidence in the flesh, if any man Thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh I more Now, Paul says, I am one who could have trusted in the flesh. The fact of the matter is, he says, I did trust in the flesh. There was a day in my experience and a time in my life when the things that are of the flesh were to me a very precious and a very wonderful thing. Now he mentions those things of the flesh. There are seven of them that are numerated here. And these are the things that men are trusting. These are the things that men today who do not want Christ turn to. They have to. A great many folk today would go right down the line as Paul does here, and these are the things that he once trusted. I want to mention them. Number one, Circumcised the eighth day. Now that means many things. It means, first of all, that he had godly parents who followed the Mosaic ritual and that they were godly Jews, that they were following the law meticulously because every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this man. Said, I had that kind of a beginning. How many folk today are saying, Well, you know, I had godly parents? I was speaking to a man some time ago. He's a very fine man, not a Christian, but he made this statement. He said, You know, my mother attended the Church of the Open Door when I was a little fella. And brought me to the church of the open door when I was just a little fella. My mother was a godly woman. Well, may I say to you, it's wonderful to have a godly mother who brought you to the church of the open door, but you're not going to heaven on her apron strings. You're not saved because you have that kind of a background. That's meaningless as far as salvation is concerned. It's wonderful to have a wonderful background, but there are multitudes of people that have had a marvelous background that are not saved, my friend. That's meaningless in many ways. But Paul could say, I had that kind of a background, circumcised the eighth day. I was started off right. I was brought up in a God-given religion. And that is the other wonderful thing. God gave circumcision to Abraham. He said, this is the thing that will set you aside in your nation, the nation that I'm choosing. They will be the depository for the word of God. Through them the Savior will come, and I'll bring blessing to multitudes because of this, and this is your badge. And this was followed, and even today followed by pious Jews. It's observed in the nation Israel today. It's a tremendous ceremony. It separated a man and made him different, by the way. And Paul could say, this is my background. That's number one. The second thing he could say is, I'm of the stock of Israel. And I want to tell you, when he said that, two or three buttons flew off of his vest. Because, my friend, to be of the stock of Israel was something at this time was a little difficult. These people today that seem to think that Great Britain got mixed up with the ten lost tribes, they all returned. But they were pretty much of a mixture. And there were some, you see, there'd been intermarriage in Babylon, there'd been intermarriage. And that right now is one of the biggest problems that the nation of Israel has. I take two little papers that they put out. And they have had article after article on this business today, even here in the United States. What is their greatest danger? Well, anti-Semitism, but the second thing is intermarriage. They don't like that. They'd like to eliminate that. And that is the thing that this man, Paul the Apostle, could say. He said, I'm of the stock of Israel. My father and my mother are both of the stock of Israel. I come from a good line. Now my friend, that's something that you don't despise. It's wonderful today to have had a wonderful father. It's a wonderful thing to have had a wonderful mother, and how many men? rest upon the fact of their ancestry. Paul says, I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm not mixed blood. I'm not just part way. I'm 100 percent. I want to tell you, that counted. When he went into Jerusalem and signed in at the temple, there's never any question about that man. He just happened to be the one that was accepted because of the background that he had. The third thing, and I think again, if there were any buttons left, they went off on this one, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was the little tribe actually under Judah. Jerusalem, if you will look at the map very carefully, Jerusalem is not in Judah, it's in Benjamin. The first king that came into the nation, the first king they had was Saul. I'm of the opinion he was named for him. This little tribe went into captivity, and when you talk about ten lost tribes, you better be careful. Levi came back, and other tribes came back. You didn't lose over four or five. And I think they could be very easily accounted for. So that when they returned back to the land, little Benjamin was there. And Benjamin was the favorite son of old Jacob. When when the mother, Rachel, died, she said, call him Benoni. He's the son of my sorrow. He took my life, and he's taking my life from me. Well, I think Jacob, who, he loved Rachel above everything else on this earth. I think that when he looked down at her, he said, I'll sure do what you want me to do. But then he went over and looked at the little fella, and then looked at the lifeless form of the mother. And he said, no, we can't call him Benoni, that son of my sorrow. I'm going to have to lean on him now. He's the son of my right hand. We'll call him Benjamin. He looked like his mother. I think he had her eyes. He must have reminded old Jacob of Rachel all the rest of his life. And therefore, uh, this man can say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. May I say that's something that you can put down on the plus column. It was valuable, my beloved, to have this kind of a background. Now he moves into another area, actually. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I think that you would have met one of the most narrow-minded, bigoted people that has ever walked this earth in that man. This is a man of strong conviction. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I don't go halfway. And believe me, you like any person like that, don't you? We've got these halfway Christians today, lukewarm. My Lord, he gave his estimation of them. He said, "I'll, I'll absolutely vomit them out. I don't like that which is lukewarm. I wish they were cold, or I wish they were hot. Paul the Apostle was never lukewarm. When he was a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You never heard him getting with a group and saying, well, now I'm not sure about the integrity of the Old Testament. I think probably we ought to read Bultmann a little bit more. Or probably we ought to be a little more broad-minded not Saul Tarsus. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he could say this not only sincerely, but accurately. I have a God-given religion. I have a religion based on the Old Testament. I have a religion in which I can have confidence, and I'm all out. I'm all out for it. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's this man. Now, that's something that's worthwhile. Now, will you notice the fifth thing, as touching the law of Pharisee. There were among the Jews several different groups that had sprung up after the captivity, when they returned to the land. Some of them evidently in the land. The scribes, when they were in captivity. Then, when they got back to the land, there were the Sadducees. They were the liberals of that day. They espoused the movement, God is dead. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the inspiration of the Old Testament. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in anything. They were the skeptics of that day. Then there were the Herodians, strictly a political party, espousing the cause of old Herod and the Herod family believing that in that family that they might eventually pull away from Rome. Then there were the Pharisees. They represented the best people in Israel. They were fundamental in the faith. They believed in the Old Testament. They did believe in miracles. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the integrity of the Old Testament. But they were also a political party, and they felt that by political gyrations you're going to bring in the kingdom down here, and that if you can have a great ecumenical movement, and that if you can today talk peace, and there is no peace, but talk it, and if you can espouse brotherhood but don't practice it, because they don't, I happen to know. May I say to you that they felt that by that method they could bring in the kingdom. And our lord stopped one of those men dead in his tracks and a good man to nicodemus who came to him by night he said to him ye must be born again and that shook him he had never heard that before he's like a lot of church members today i think you'd shake them if you told them that they're not saved what me may i say to you the pharisees my beloved thought they were saved and nicodemus did how can a man be born when he's old? How can these things be? My Lord told him, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Saul of Tarsus was a young man Pharisee, the leader, and I mean a leader. Now, will you notice the sixth thing concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, he had zeal. He was not only a Pharisee. The old Pharisees said, let's get these Christians out of Jerusalem. And when they did, they stopped. Saul of Tarsus says, not me. I'm on their trail. I'll follow them until I eliminate them. I intend to get rid of them. And on the way to Damascus, he had papers from the chief priests to arrest Christians in Damascus because he was after them. He had zeal, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. May I make this comment on the side? Zeal is a wonderful thing. However, this is the man that spoke about zeal without knowledge later on. He knew something of that. Isn't it interesting that the cults today all have zeal? You remember what the Lord Jesus himself said to the Pharisees. He says, you will compass a land and sea in order to make one proselyte. They were out after them. One of the things that characterizes the cults is zeal. They all have zeal. I only wish believers today had zeal. We as believers had zeal. This is a tremendous Sunday morning congregation here at the end of August. But if we had zeal, we'd have the unsaved here today, and the top balcony would be filled if we had zeal. Zeal's a great thing. And this man had zeal. He persecuted the church, and in so doing, he thought he was doing the right thing. And he couldn't understand when our Lord waylaid him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me?" He said, I didn't know you, and I didn't know I was persecuting you. You see, we saw the other night, the baptism of believers takes a believer and puts him in the body of Christ, so he's identified with Christ to the extent that when you touch a believer, you touch Christ. That's how close they are to him. Baptized, identified into the body of believers, and he said to Saul, you're persecuting me. Paul said, that's news to me. He didn't know it, the seventh and the last thing, touching the righteousness which is in the law of blameness. Now, the difficulty is here, you may get the impression this man was perfect. He's not saying that. He very frankly says later on, I have not yet apprehended that for which I have been apprehended. I am not perfect, completes what the word is. But what he's saying here is simply this as touching the righteousness which is in the law. Not the keeping of the law, he's not saying that. But how would he get a righteousness in the law? Well, at the very heart of the Mosaic system, there was a sacrificial system, and it was for sin. I think it was probably the most monotonous ritual that is imaginable. I'm sure that many priests would meet together for the coffee break, and one would say to the others, I've just been over at the labor washing the blood off my hands, and I've done it a dozen times today. I'm so tired of offering these little animals. I'm so tired of washing. I have to wash my hands. I wash my feet. I keep going through this ritual. You know what God was telling them? God was telling them, I don't want you to forget that sin is a terrible thing, and you don't come to me until you settle the sin question. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, Saul of Tarsus was not perfect. The fact of the matter is, in Romans, he tells us. But I'm amazed even at his life here. Over in the seventh chapter of Romans, listen to him. What shall we say then? Romans 7, 7, this is, is the law sin, God forbid, nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, that is, desire, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet, Paul said, I could just walk down the street, and say, I wish I had that man's car, wish I had that man's bank account, I wish I had that man's wife. And it would not be wrong because there'd be no law about it. But he says that law came along and said, Thou shalt not covet. And Paul says, But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now I marvel at this man. He could go through nine of the Ten Commandments and say, before God, I keep them. How many of you can stand up this morning here and say, I keep the first nine commandments? Don't you dare stand up, because you know you cannot, if you're honest. Not a person here could say, stand up and say, I have kept the first nine commandments. If Saul of Tarsus was here, he'd stand up and say, creature, I kept the first nine. But he said, Oh boy, when I got to that tenth one, it slew me. I coveted. And the interesting thing about coveting is if you keep your mouth shut, nobody'll know you do it. You can steal without you know, they catch you with the goods on you, and I advise you not to do it. And you cannot murder without having a corpus delecti on your hands. And they're hard to get rid of, so they tell me. But my friend. You can't commit adultery without somebody knowing it, but you can sit right here in this pulpit and covet, and none of you will know anything about it. Yes, you can. Paul, you should have kept quiet. We would have thought you were perfect, but he was me. He said, I coveted, and the law, the law slew me. Well, then, what did you do, Saul? Well, he said, I followed the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law said for a a trespass offering and a sin offering that you bring a little animal to God in a sacrifice. And I did it. And through that, I had the righteousness that the law offered. And I knew it was pointing to something, but I did not know clearly what it was until I was on the Damascus road. These are the seven things that this man trusted, their religion. How many people that have joined the church and they go through a little ritual and they attend a few little services and they mouth a few little pious platitudes and they say, I'm a Christian. Are you? Saul of Tarsus thought he was all right. And then on that Damascus road, he met Jesus Christ. Will you notice what happened? This is the revolution. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. These seven things that I put over on the credit side of the ledger, I put them over to me. And I was going to present them up there someday. I was going to say to the Lord, look at me. I'm like little Jack Horner that sat in the corner. And he reached in his thumb and pulled out a plum and he said, what a smart boy am I. And a lot of folks think they're going to say that to God today, someday. Oh, look at me. Look what I've done. Look who I am. Paul said, When I met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, all of those things I trusted, I no longer trusted, and they got from the credit side of the ledger over to the debit side, and the one that I hated, in fact, I was on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians because I hated him, and he was a debit to me, now he becomes a credit to me, and he's the only one that I trust. His bookkeeping system was absolutely turned upside down. What was a credit became a debit. What was a debit became a credit. And my friend, that's a revolution. Suppose all the banks, all of the department stores and businesses would change their bookkeeping system. And what's a credit would become a debit, and what's a debit would become a credit. Suppose when I go down to pay the bills, there'll be some. And I go down, and I go into the department store, and I would say, look, here is a check for my statement that you sent. And the lady there that's the cashier said, Dr. McGee, we changed our bookkeeping system. And you don't owe us, we owe you, and here's a check for it. I'd be a millionaire if that went into effect. It'd be marvelous, wouldn't it? And I say to you that the stock market may be jittery now, but it would have the heebie-jeebies and a coronary if that took place. I tell you, the economy of this country would absolutely go to pieces if you changed it like that. My friend, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. What he counted as a credit becomes a liability. I don't count... You circumcise, I don't count it. You uh, kept all the law except one, I don't count it. I now trust Christ and he alone. I heard Dr. Chafer once say that I want to so trust Jesus Christ. That when I come up before him someday and he'd say to me, why are you here? And I'd say, well, I trusted Christ. He'd say, that's nice of you, but didn't you do something else? You were president of a seminary. Wouldn't you like to mention that? And he'd say, no, not that. Well, you did this, that, and the other thing. Wouldn't you like to mention that? said, would no. Will you mean to tell me that you're not presenting anything here? Not a thing. I just trust Christ. And God would say, well, I'm sorry, but, but I, you must know that that's a pretty silly basis. Just to trust him. Dr. Shaver says, I want to so trust Christ that I'd turn and walk away, because I only trusted him as my Savior. Listen to this man, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dumb. Paul said that which is religion today is Only good to put in the garbage can. That's making it pretty strong, don't you think? All of the religion should be put in the garbage and flushed down into the ocean. No good before God. Only Christ. Listen to him. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Old Baptist John Bunyan, walking through the cornfields at night, said, I felt I was going mad. He said, I finally saw John Bunyan as God saw John Bunyan, and I wasn't just a sinner. I was sinned from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't appear in God's presence. Then he said, walking through that cornfield that night, this verse came to me, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, And John Bunyan said, I just reached out, and by faith, I took it, and I trusted him alone. And you read his experience in Pilgrim's Progress. That's the man that came to the cross, and the burden of sin rolled off. Now, having said this, and I must be through, you would come to the conclusion then, Paul, you'll no longer be zealous. I suppose now that you're saved by grace and these things count no more, that you're going to sit back and do nothing. My friend, will you listen to him? If you think he was busy before, and he was, that was nothing compared to how busy this man becomes now. You've never seen a man so busy trying to get the Word of God out. Listen to him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, why, he says, I'm going to be present at Bible study all the time because I want to know him. I'm going to study his word. I want to know him. And then he said, that's not all. I haven't attained. I'm not one of these super-duper saints that has got everything God has for me. I'm not yet attained. I'm not already complete. I fall after I'm busy now because I want to know him and I want to serve him. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before us, I press toward the mark the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And if you want to know whether he's saved and whether a revolution really took place, watch him. Before he was willing, as a Pharisee with zeal, to go to Damascus. Now he's willing to go to the ends of the earth, and he does. He went to Spain, he went to Rome, he may have gone to the British Isles. Before he's willing to kill Christians, Now he'll die as a Christian. Don't tell me if you're saved by grace you're going to sit down and twiddle your thumbs and become a critic of everybody else. My friend, you're going to be busy for him if a revolution takes place in your life. Are you willing to search your own heart? What does Christ really mean to you today? You don't need to go back and point to a place or time somewhere in history to say I was converted. Some people can. That's fine. If it's true, that's not the essential thing. I had a lady that came into my study and talked about, and she's active, conducts a Bible class, active in the church. Everybody thinks she's a, Christian, She said, Dr. McGee, I'm not sure I'm saved. I can't go back to an experience. I can't go back to a moment. Saul could. Many others can, but there are many that cannot. The important thing is, right here this morning, right now, this moment, can you say, he is my Savior. I do trust him. And I'm not trusting anything else. I'm not looking to offer anything to God except this wonderful Savior, and I'm in him because I trust him. Are you present today, friends, and right here and now at this moment? That's all he asks you to do. That's all he asks you to do, just to come to know him, to meet him. Who art thou, Lord? That's what Saul said. Most brilliant man that ever walked the earth, ignorant of the greatest truth there is, to know Christ, to know him, that's life. This morning, right where you're sitting, would you trust him? And if you will, the best you know how, not the amount of knowledge you have. Because even Paul, at the end of his life, when he wrote Philippians, would still say, It's the desire and ambition of my life to know him. I do not think throughout eternity we'll ever know him, but it'll make a marvelous study just to know him. Are you here today? And you'd like to say right where you're sitting, preacher, the best I know how I'll trust him right here and now.
0: For more great teaching by Dr. McGee in the book of Philippians, be sure to join us this week as the Bible Bus rolls through chapters 2 and 3. You can download our app or listen online at ttb.org. And if you'd like to be in touch, call 1-800-65-BIBLE or write to us at BibleBus at ttb.org. Again, that's 1-800-65-BIBLE or BibleBus at ttb.org. Now as we go, I'm Steve Schwetz praying Philippians 3, 13, and 14 asking the Lord to help us forget what's behind this week and then reach forward to what lies ahead, continuing to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.